0: Welcome to the New Freedom Church podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Well, last week, something really special happened in here, and I told you that we were going to go ahead and dismiss ourselves from the room, but we were not going to stop the service, that the service was going to continue. And so I touched on the news about hearing of the revivals that spontaneously have been breaking out and spreading throughout college campuses in our country. And so for context, this message will probably make a little more sense if you were here last week or you want to go back and watch the the message from last week. But for the word revival, I think it carries with it some diverse assumptions. I think it carries with it some notions of ways that God has moved in the past and ways that we expect God should surely move in our day. And so I want to maybe uh, opt away from that word for just the context of our message here and instead go with The words that I feel the Lord put on my heart for last week, which was a move of God. Sure, we are being revived, we are being awakened, we are being alivened, but there is something bigger that is happening in our day. There is something more uh, monumental that God is doing, and there is a move of God that is sweeping throughout our land, and it's starting with hearts that have been set ablaze by the Spirit of God that are taking their testimony, their witness, and the words of Jesus into their world. And I don't know about you, I want to be one of those who are a witness for Jesus in my world and in my day. All throughout the Bible, we have seen both personal and corporate awakenings of revival. And here's the, the marker of them. They kept moving. Revival was not something that was static. It was not something that was permanent being relegated to a, a specific geographic location. Where it started and where it was birthed was only a housing place. It was only a a place to house it until it had reached a maturity to go out into some other place. And revivals of the past never lasted forever in their place of origin. I shared with you Acts chapter 2 last week, how that from that upper room, they spilled out 120 and they went into the highways and the hedges. They were compelling people to come to the Lord, not to come to their church. It's not a matter of the membership banner. It's not a matter of whose church you belong to or what your denomination is or what stripe that you label yourself by. What it is a matter of is I am getting caught up in the moving of God in the activity of the spirit in my day and in this age. And so this revival that began in Acts chapter two has literally gone around the world and continues to move throughout the hearts and lives of people today. It kept moving and it keeps moving. I shared with you about some of the great revivals of the past in America, and I just want to zero in on one of them for our message today, and that was the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening took place, they estimate, between the years of 1790 and 1875 in this country. They call this the Second Great Awakening. Generally, it was less emotional, hear me, it was less emotional than the First Great Awakening which preceded it. It also had with it um, this great turning of repentance of people giving their lives to the Lord. It led to the founding of Christian colleges and seminaries and organization through missionary societies. This was the result of the Second Great Awakening. And here's the amazing thing that stands out to me about this time period. From the 1790s to about 1875, A person could have been born at the very beginning of that revival. They could have lived 85, 90 years, and all of their life long, they were in a verifiable, bona fide revival and awakening of God in their land. And yet, because that was the norm, because that was the era that they were born in, because that was what they had always been exposed to, they could have lived and died in a full-fledged revival and not even realized there was a move of God happening in their land. Now you say, how, Pastor Joe, could they not even realize, look at all the great things that were happening? Yeah, but let's be a student of history. Let's look at also that era, how many things that were happening. There was great social and moral evils and ills that were taking place There was human trafficking and slavery and abuse. There was a great civil war in this country that raged during that period of time. You mean that we can have wars and rumors of wars and then fighting and people being mistreated and abused even in the midst of revival? Yes. There was social and political upheaval. There was political infighting. There was factions and sides that were warring one with the other. There were things like political strife and worldwide financial insecurity within those years of the second great awakening. And yet God saw fit to use those people of that time in that generation to impact the world, specifically America, but the worldwide with revival. And we are still seeing the effects and the embers of what was blazing then through Colleges and seminaries and mission societies. So I would say to you today that we are blessed of God in our day, right now, today, to be caught up in a verifiable move of God that I call today a holy moment. Let's say that together a holy moment. A holy moment is an internal spiritual cleansing that results in an outward change of action, behavior, and dedication. It's on the inside that God begins first to work and deal and to hone and to tune our heart to his voice. And as we're receptive, as we respond to that upward calling in Christ Jesus, then we start to see the outward effects in our life. I want to say to you by the spirit of God this morning, whatever you do, don't miss your holy moment. Do not miss this holy moment. Out of all the amazing adventures that Jesus' disciples experienced, three and a half years of this fast-paced ministry travel, three and a half years of going from town to village, of seeing healings, miracles, signs, and wonders. In these three and a half years, there are two Moments that stand out above and beyond the rest. I can't say that they're better than the rest, but I will say that there is something about these two specific moments that are holy in and of themselves that stand in a different category than the rest. And it's not because these two moments were the most dramatic. In fact, in some ways, they were the most private moments that Jesus had with the 12 disciples that he called to himself. One could argue that these holy moments were quite simply an ordinary experience. But yet they have lasted for 2,000 years as memorials for the body of Christ. These moments are what we would consider spiritual and inner cleansing, these holy moments. The Bible often uses symbols, uh, types, and shadows. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, how that God will give us an illustration, something visible to see with our eyes that speak of a spiritual truth, something that we can touch tangible, that we can see and we can hold, but it speaks of something yet to come. It speaks of something we have not yet experienced. One of the first examples of this is God instructed Moses to build for him a tabernacle. This was a tent that they could travel from from town to town in the desert. This was a tent that had very specific instructions on how it's to be constructed, on what it's supposed to serve for. And Moses' tabernacle had these markers about it that were in outer court, full daylight. They could see everything that was happening out there. They would bring and prepare the sacrifices for worship. But they didn't stay in the outer court because then there was a smaller tent, and on that tent there were two sides, and one was an inner court, and there, there was a a little less light. There was a menorah, and there was a lampstand that had some candles, and you could see some things there, and there was an altar of incense, and and there was some uh, objects of worship more deeper into their revelation of what God was doing. They realized that God was doing something in the inner court that didn't take place in the outer court, that there is some visible things in our lives that everybody, sees. But then there is a inner sanctum. There's a inner place that then we go there and we meet with the Lord. And there are some, some, some things that even we can see in that moment and in that place. And God reveals himself to us. But then there is a inner court. And this was the Holy of Holies. There were three chambers, you could say, of Moses' tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, and the most holy place. And when you got into the most holy place, it was only the high priest that could go into the most holy place. But when the high priest got to that place, there was a Shekinah glory of God. There was a glow. There was a presence. There was the, uh, the, the aurora of God was so big and so broad that even on the outside, the people could know when God had visited the tent because there was a cloud by day and fire by night. And this was a visible sign, a representative of heaven meeting earth, of where God would meet with man, of where God tabernacled with them in the old covenant, in the desert places. And it was just a sign and a symbol that points us to something else. And the gospel writer John says it like this, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he tabernacled with us. He came down and pitched his tent and dwelled with us and we beheld him as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And when the readers of the New Testament would read that, their minds would hearken back to, oh, this is the tent that Moses built, but he only had a a dimly lit vision of what it was. He could only see a little bit of what this was. Now we behold him for ourselves. God gave us 10 commandments. Gave Moses, again, this great uh, opportunity to go and lead the people. And he gave us 10 commandments. At first, God chiseled those out of stone and wrote them. It's, the Bible says that they were written with the finger of God. The only place we ever know of anything being written by God was on those stone tablets. And then in the New Testament, Jesus stoops down in the dirt and he writes something in the sand. Remember when the woman was caught in the act of adultery and they bring her to Jesus and her accusers are there and and they all have these stones and they're getting ready to stone her and they ask Jesus what they should do. And he stoops down and he writes in the sand. It's often been wondered, what did Jesus write in that sand? We have no other recorded writings of Jesus. Jesus didn't write the Bible. Human authors inspired by the word of God, by the spirit of God wrote the Bible. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dirt. Those first 10 commandments that were written and blazoned with the finger of God, we don't have those today. You know why? Because Moses was the first man to ever break all 10 commandments at the same time. He came down off the mountain and he saw that the people had gone astray and he cast them down and he broke all of those commandments and they are gone from the earth. We will never find them. They are gone. They are destroyed. And I think it's good that they are because we would probably have set them up as an idol to worship them instead of worship God. So these signs and these symbols, these visual, tangible um, uh, markers are just to serve for a pointing thing. A sign points to something. It is not that thing in and of itself, but it points to something. If you go about a mile and a half outside the city limits, you'll see a sign and it says Lebanon with an arrow that way. Now, you could camp out right there at that sign and say, I'm in Lebanon, but you're not in Lebanon. You're at the sign that points you to the place. And some people have gotten so excited about the goosebumps that they felt in worship, they say, I found God. No, there is something better. There is something greater. That's just a sign and a symbol pointing to the real one. You don't have to just settle one time for that. You can live in his presence daily. Because he came to tabernacle with us, but he went to the Father and he said, it's expedient that I go, because if I go, if I don't go, then I can't send the Comforter. But when I arrive, when I get there, I will send you a sign. I will send you a symbol. And on the day of Pentecost, we knew that Jesus had made it back to the Father. The Spirit came. We were endued with power from on high. But the Ten Commandments, they were nothing more than a sign pointing to something. Moses then had to go up to the mountain again and receive the next set of tablets, but he had to write them himself this time. God said, I did the work the first time. You messed it up. Now you're going to train my son how to write these things and how to chisel this out. And see, this is how God puts us. He's so gracious. He puts us in remedial classes. Anybody ever been in a remedial class for Jesus? Come on. I'm not the only slow learner in this place with a tight trial, tribulation testing. I've had to go around that mountain a few times. Moses and Israel, they camped out and they traveled around the same mountain for 40 long years. They had a hard time learning the lessons. But thanks be to God, we don't have to keep traveling around that same mountain for 40 years. We have them as examples. Everything that was written was written as an example for us. They weren't written to us, but they were written for us as an example pointing to something to the day in which God told the prophet there will come a day when you won't need those tablets of stone any longer for I will write my laws on your heart and in your mind and by the spirit of God we know and we get checked and with God's loving grace he corrects us and he directs us into the path that we should go there is a time when the people disobeyed God and Moses is what it says Numbers chapter 21, they disobeyed God and Moses, and God sent serpents into the land, and these serpents began biting people. Some people died, but many, many got sick. And so Moses beseeched God. He said, God, what do I do for the people since they're now sick? And God said, take a, a rod and make a bronze serpent. Now, this blows, this blows my mind. As a, as a Bible reader, I think, okay, wait a minute. Aaron just got in trouble, God, for making something out of gold, a calf, And now, God, you're telling Moses to make a bronze serpent. Why? Put it on a stick, Moses. Why do I do that, God? This is weird. These people are sick. We want to question and debate God, don't we? Like, come on, God, I've got a good plan here. You need to hear my plans. Catch up with me, God, if you just go along with me. No, God doesn't work that way. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts above your thoughts. Moses said, okay. He took this rod with a bronze serpent and God said when you lift it up as the people who are sick who disobeyed will look at that bronze serpent the very thing that caused the curse is now on this pole and when they see that they'll be healed what was it a sign and a symbol of when Jesus was lifted up the one who had no sin the one who did not deserve to be on that cross he bore the weight and the guilt and the shame of our sin and all who look up to him are saved and healed This is a sign. It's a symbol. So Jesus' disciples find themselves on the other end of the greatest rabbi, the greatest teacher ever to live. They've walked with Jesus. They've talked with Jesus. They've done ministry with Jesus. They've had meals. They've had to learn how to pay the taxes without any money in the bank. They know what it's like to have provision when they have no food and bread and and fish, or multiply. They they understand what it means to walk in the miraculous. And Jesus uses three symbols to punctuate for them the two holy moments that are so indiscreet, that are so quiet and undisclosed, that are locked away in a room with only 12 witnesses to be able to testify of it, Jesus uses bread, he uses wine, and he uses water. In these two holy moments, we find in the scripture as being placed back to back to one another. The first one is in Matthew 26 and 17. It says, now on the first day of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and, and say to him, the teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, get this, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. When we look at this text, and at this point, we stop and we say, okay, all of the disciples should have been easily able to identify who the betrayer was. Jesus just said, it's the one who dips his hand in the dish with me. That's my betrayer. We, we read it through that context. We think, okay, it's easy to find out. Watch for the next person to dip their hand. That's the one. Where is he? Where's Judas? Where, he's going to dip. What Jesus was saying is, one of you 12, he didn't identify Judas. One of you are going to betray me even he who dips his hand in the dish. In other words, someone at my very own dinner table. He didn't identify who it was because they had all previously and were and are going to dip in the table. It wasn't easy for them to pick out which one, but this information that Jesus shares at the Last Supper perplexes them. Of all the things that Jesus has said and done to this point, some very hard sayings, this one really caused A heart hit to them. This one really caused them to take an introspective look. And they begin asking Jesus, is it me? Is it me? Verse 24, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him? See, betrayal didn't happen as an aha moment. I think I'm gonna betray Jesus. This was something in process. This was something that was already in development. There are temptations, there are tests that you are already under, you are already going through. And Satan isn't going to just take you out in one swift moment without you being aware that you've even been tested. But it was that second and third look. It was that little lingering too long. It was that moment when you were drifting and drifting and you look back and you said, I can still make it. I can still get back. It is already underway. There are testings and trials and temptations, things that the enemy is slowly luring you away. He's not going to just come in a a, a devil suit with a pitchfork and, and horns on his head. That would be way too obvious, but it is the drift. He was already betraying Jesus. And there are those under the sound of my voice who are already in the drift. And you think because you're close enough to shore, you can easily get back, but here is the warning. Be careful for the rogue wave that takes you just a little too far. Because as it's been said, sin will always take you further than you wanna go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you way, way more than you want to pay. Yeah. And you won't know it until you look back and you say, if only I had thrown a lifeline out. I could have yelled for some help, but I was drifting because in my flowery bed of ease, it felt so good. I was enjoying all that I had been added to. Look at me now. I'm out here drifting, and I'm not sinking. Yeah but the shoreline is getting distant. And it said that Judas was already betraying him and said to him, listen, Rabbi, is it I? We are so self-deceived. Rabbi, I know that I've already talked to the council and the town leaders. I know that they've already agreed for the pieces of silver for me to betray you, but I could easily give it back. I don't have to, is it I? Just reveal it, prophet, tell me. If it's me, then here's what I think Judas is saying. It's my sermon, I'll preach it how I want to. He said, I? I can repent, Jesus. If I've gone too far, just, just send me a sign. Just let it flash out. Just lock the door. God doesn't always lock the door. You can open the door. i never forget, I was a student at World Harvest in Columbus and heard uh, my pastor talking about a deliverance service that they were doing. At the end of the service, he said that he was, had prayed a long time and this lady came up and he had two elders with him, and, and it was almost an empty room, but she came up, and she looked at him, and she said, I'm here sent by Satan, and I'm going to stab you. And he looked at one elder, he looked at the other, and he said, run, and they took off running. <laughs> and they went, they, they hit The elders got in the room, and said, pastor, why'd you run? You're the man of faith and power. You could have cast that demon out of her. He said, if she were possessed, I would have cast the demon out, but that lady's crazy, and she could have stabbed me. <laughs> you got to know the difference people trying to cast out flesh. You can't cast out flesh. You're in this flesh. Oh, the Lord's just gonna prevent me from doing the bad things because you know I'm saved and I, I can't have a devil. No, but there's an outer court and, and that, those enemies can come through that outer court. It's, it's daylight. You, you think that just because you've said yes to Jesus at one time, you're protected from, from everything. Well, you need to get in that holy sanctum. There is a holy place with God. There is a place of communion where only you and God go, nobody else goes. And if you've not been there in a while, it's time to take a visit. It's time to get out of the outer court, go through that inner court and get to that Holy of Holies. But here he says, Rabbi, is it me? And Jesus said, you have said it. He had it confirmed and it wasn't enough. As they were there eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood in the new covenant which was shed for the remission of sin. Shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, Jesus tells the disciples two things in this text. The first one they had already heard. They already knew that Jesus had said, I am going away. 33 and a half years old is not the time when someone checks out. It's not the time of retirement. It's not the time to stop your uber successful ministry at 33 and a half years old. Jesus had already told them that, but in their minds, it wasn't going to happen. Jesus wasn't going away. Jesus is just saying that. Of course he's tired. He's had a long ministry schedule. People are all the time pressing in. He's no, fellas, he's not going nowhere. But Jesus had already told them that. That was not new information to them. That was not new news. This part is news. The second thing he says, not only am I leaving but one of you, my tr- trusted associates, are going to betray me. This was the first time they heard that. And in my opinion, they completely missed the power of the first holy moment, this Holy Supper, which we're going to observe here in just a little while, this holy moment of the Lord's Supper, of communion. They missed the power of this first holy moment because, listen, they were trying to process and figure out... They were trying to read through the lines and logically figure out what Jesus had already said, and they're now starting with accusing eyes, looking at every one of them. Well, I know over here that Simon, I I remember when he was off to the side, and he was talking, and you know, John, John, he's just a little bit too close to Jesus. And, you know, James, I just don't know, but so they're now all of a sudden, they're starting to accuse. You ever, you ever had those accusing thoughts? I just don't, I don't think that she likes me no more because... She didn't even respond to my text. She gave me one of those thumbs up. Now, that's not like her. Our minds work overtime now. Maybe she was in the grocery line at Kroger's and she she had to really quickly, you know, put something on there. Real quick little thumbs up. Our minds are everything. And so this is their processing and they completely missed the holy moment over the news, which they were trying to figure out. And here's what I want to say. Don't wait until things are exactly figured out to have and observe your holy moment. Because you might just miss your holy moment. You need to embrace your holy moment. Have you ever sat down to a satisfying meal with great company, and then because of the device that is on your table, someone sends you something or a phone call happens, and you receive some bad news. In that time you had anticipated sitting down and enjoying and eating, and you were hungry when you got there, but now because of the news, you've lost all your appetite. You don't even really want to have the meal because you cannot stop thinking about the phone call, the text message, the newsflash, the Instagram post that you just saw. And it loses all of its significance for you. This is what happened to the disciples. They missed the first holy moment because of the news which they had heard. To this very day, Christians around the world continue to observe this most holy meal. Jesus told them, this is my body. And when he said that, he would have lifted up a piece of bread that looks like a wafer. It was unleavened bread. It's not a big loaf like we eat today, but it was unleavened bread because Jesus' body in the flesh was without sin. Leaven has no yeast. Yeast is what makes the bread rise. Yeast in the Bible is equated to sin. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Drifting, it's just a little white lie, drifting it's just a small little look it's just a little sin it 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 certainly can't take me out just a little leaven just a small it is the small foxes that spoil the vine it is the leaven that rises the bread just a little bit can rise the whole lump and Jesus illustrated that his body was about to be broken but it was sinless and so when he took the bread he said take this is my body which is broken for you. And he gave it to his disciples. And likewise, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you do this, as often as you take, as often as you drink, do it in remembrance of me. And he passed the cup around. But they really couldn't enjoy because they're still wondering Who is it? Which is the one who's going to betray him? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers, they all agree on this. There are only a few things which all four of them record in all four gospels, and this Last Supper is one of them. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke only tell us about this holy moment. They don't go beyond. They don't go further. They don't take us to the next step, which was immediately after supper. The apostle John writes to us that there was a Passover meal. And then he quickly goes beyond that holy moment. John, the beloved, remember, it was the disciple whom Jesus himself loved. They were the closest. Jesus had 12 disciples. Three of them were in his inner circle, and he loved one to the point he loved them all, but he, he was in closest fellowship with one. And in your life, there are likely 8 to 15 people. It is an oikos principle. I'll be sharing it next week. There, there are 8 to 15 people who are in your circle of influence, in your sphere, who you are impacting on a daily basis, whether you realize it or not, your life is speaking. Jesus had 12. You likely have 8 to 15 in your life. But within that 8 to 15, there were three in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But John, the beloved, the one that we see resting with Jesus, laying on the bosom of Jesus, doing the bidding of his master, come what may, he was the faithful disciple, records these words. He says in John 13 and 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, now the first three gospel writers tell us about the supper, they don't tell us about the end. John tells us about the end. Now, in supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments and took up his towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he girded. Only John tells us this account. This holy moment of Jesus at the very end of this supper. Scott, come up here. Tom, come up here. Sit right here for me. Lorna, will you join me? Holly, honey, come here and join me. Only John describes, stand here with me, stand here with me. Stand here with me. Only John describes this. I need you to take your shoes off." Jesus gets up from that supper, knowing they had missed that holy moment, but he had revealed to them two very important facets. Number one, he was leaving, and number two, one was going to betray him. Before everything had completed, he sits down the (laughs) twelve. And he begins to wash his disciples' feet. I had to go back and read it. Wait a minute. But the other gospel writers said that Jesus told Judas, do what you must do. The one that dips his hand in my my bowl, that's the one that betrayed me. And he goes out and he betrays Jesus. But wait a minute, John, we have to understand that the the gospel writers, they they write in such a way that uh, there, there are four eyewitness accounts. You can take a, a, an accident, a car accident, and if there's bystanders, there's cameras, every angle will look just a little bit different. It's not that the story is all convoluted and people got it wrong. It's that they see it from a different vantage point. And so from John's vantage point, he wants us to understand that there were still, at the time of this washing, there were still 12 disciples sitting at the table. Jesus, already knowing what was about to happen, sits all of them down, Judas included and he began to wash their feet. It says he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash their feet. He poured out the pitcher, he poured out the water. Yeah. And he washed their feet and he dried it. this is a holy moment this is a holy moment this is a holy moment the ushers are going to help you from the back to the front to come out of your seat down these side aisles each table is going to be available for you to partake of the lord's supper this morning as we close but I want to offer you the opportunity to have another holy moment besides this. I was talking with Holly. I don't think in 17 years as a church body, we have ever publicly held a foot washing. Privately, yes, we have in in small groups and we have in small settings, but publicly offered a foot washing. I wanna give you the opportunity. If you want me to wash your feet, I'll do it right here. If you want to wash somebody else's feet, there's a row here, there's a row here. All my friends from Fellowship of Praise and our ones that went to Dominican Republic with us, didn't even know they were coming today. They they joined us and you became part of my illustration this morning. So take a shoe off, we're gonna wash your feet. Now somebody's gonna say, I've already heard it. I've already heard it. Somebody's gonna say, no, no, I don't like feet. Join the club, ask my wife, I don't like feet. This is way out of my comfort zone. Last week I was out of my comfort zone because I very seldom, if ever, will change a message. But at 8.30 last Sunday morning, I told the media team, get rid of that slide I gave you, get rid of that message. I just wrote another one in 15 minutes. Don't know how it's gonna go, but this is the one that's coming this week. (laughs) And this week I'm out of my comfort zone because I don't like feet. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody can go get the kids in kids' church if they want to. I I want them to come in and see this. Look at this. For all that we, for for all that we praise Peter for, there are some things that are a little bit difficult to, to see about Peter Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you are washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, Peter, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you will after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You see, there's a power differential. Jesus is master, Messiah, Lord and Savior. It was Peter, Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And he said this, and some say you're Elijah, some say you're, you're a good prophet. And Jesus said, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus, Peter said, I know who you are. I've walked with you. I've seen the miracles for myself. I'm an eyewitness. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, upon that word, upon that revelation, I will build my church. Peter knew who Jesus was. Peter had a revelation of Jesus, but this is why he said, you're so much higher than I, you're so much greater than me. You can't wash my feet, you're the master. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now look at Peter, obstinate, ready rider, pull out the sword, cut off Malchus' ear. Peter, I'll never deny you, Jesus. Right after the betrayal, Hey, weren't you with Jesus? I don't know the man. Weren't you with, I've never seen him. Started cursing and cussing. The very same night that Peter said, I'll never leave you. He denies Jesus three times. This is Peter, the father of the modern church. This is Peter. And Jesus said, if I can't serve you, you have no place with me. See, service is a holy moment. And then Jesus said to him, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, in that case, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Just, just everything, Jesus, if that's the case, I'll let you wash my feet, I know I don't like feet, I don't wanna touch feet, don't wanna look at feet, but Jesus, okay, I do wanna be part of your team. I do wanna be with you, so then go ahead and wash my hands and wash my head and everything. See, Peter, he is so prone to extremes. Anybody like Peter in here? Come on, two of you. Raise your hand if you're like Peter in here. You're so prone to extremes. He wanted a bath. He just said, oh, if if that's how it's gonna go, I I want it all, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to have his feet washed. He's completely clean and you are clean. (laughs) Here's what Jesus is saying. This is a sign, this is a symbol. This is a holy moment for you to experience what it's like to be part of the family of God. If you have never said yes to Jesus, If you came into this place and you were wondering and you were questioning and you were just were not sure, then I wanna share with you the best news that you will ever hear. It's called the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not, hear me, God did not come into this world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. There is a remedy, there is a plan. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to be destroyed. You can have eternal life and today could be that day. You say, but pastor, I'd like to do that. How do I do that? It's easy as A, B, C. A, you admit that you're a sinner. B, you believe on the Lord Jesus with all your heart. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And C, you commit your life to him. Before we come forward, I wanna give you that opportunity where you are with no heads bowed and with no eyes closed, with holy boldness, everybody looking, say this with me. You might just encourage your neighbor to say it. Dear God, I come to you today with all my mess, just like I am, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Today, I repent of my sin That means I turn away from my old life. I commit my life anew to you, Jesus. And I will serve you as you show me how, amen.